Grant us this in Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. I'd love for you to take your Bibles out and turn to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42, starting in verse 18. And if you did not bring a Bible with you, there's Bibles in the seat backs uh, underneath the seats in front of you, and you can take one of those out. And you can keep that if you are in need of a Bible or know someone that needs one. So Isaiah 42, starting in verse 18, we're going to be traveling through uh, a lot of different scripture this morning. And so hold on, buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. Okay. God's way to reformation. Tuesday was election day. I see people going, uh, he's not going to honestly talk about that. Yes, I am. On Tuesday, 66% of Californians who voted, voted to put into the Constitution of California the right to kill babies, unborn babies, babies up to the moment of birth. When things like that happen, how do you put that into perspective? I had people tell me this week, well, that's a political thing. That's not a biblical thing. And I just said, you're wrong. It's biblical. Jesus came to give us life. We just celebrated that. How in the world could we Say, well, that's someone else's decision. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, stop that. So you don't want to stop someone murdering someone that's 35 years old? You know, we don't need laws for that. They just let them do that if they want to murder someone. So that doesn't work. It doesn't work. Jesus came to give us life. We as believers need to protect life. And when you see things like this happen, and it wasn't something that most of us didn't see coming, the truth is, is we know that overall, our specific culture here in California, many, many people have lost their sense of who God is and what God's all about. That's how a vote like that happens. Because when you lose God, you don't just lose religion, you lose everything else worth living for. And then life becomes death. I want you to listen to something that was written many, many years ago. We have to go to the heart of the tragedy being experienced by modern man. The eclipse of the sense of God and of man, typical of a social and cultural climate dominated by secularism, which, with its tentacles, succeeds at times in putting Christian communities themselves to the test. Those who allow themselves to be influenced by this Secular climate easily fall into a sad, vicious circle. When the sense of God is lost, 
There is also a tendency to lose the sense of man, of his dignity and his life. In turn, the systematic violation of the moral law, especially in the serious matter of respect for human life and its dignity. It produces a kind of progressive darkening of the capacity to discern God's living and saving presence. The eclipse of this sense of God and of man inevitably leads to a practical materialism which breeds individualism, utilitarianism, and hedonism. And it could have been written this morning. How do you respond to a world that's just absolutely crazy? And it's sad. It's sad. Well, here's the deal. God wants to give it all back. What? All that we have lost. He has purpose for us. Even in the darkness. Even in the brokenness. He says, I have created you for my glory, and I will fill your life with an inspiring new sense of worth, of promise, of purpose. Later on, as we go through the latter parts of Isaiah, right at the very end, God lets everyone know that he intends to renew the whole universe. That's his plan. That's his goal. And do you know where he begins? Everyone point to yourself. No, seriously, point to yourself. He begins with you. He begins with me. Right here. In two levels. Isaiah shows us that God reforms people. And that's what we're looking at today in Isaiah 42, 18 through chapter 43, verse 21. That God reforms those who lost their purpose. And next week, we're going to be looking at the fact that God revives. That there is always a revival with God. The renovation process of the universe begins with us. Reformation. It's a word that we throw around here at our church every once in a while. What is it? Well, reformation is the recovery of God's purpose. The recovery of God's purpose for us. Revival is the recovery of God's life in us. God loves to reform and God loves to renew. He loves to reform and to renew confused and tired people. I know many people after this week, once again, that were just confused and tired about the state of our country and our state and our city. So then what is reformation? 
Reformation is God renewing in our hearts a passionate clarity for His purpose for us. It is God reawakening in us a love for His truth, a love for His standards. That was what the original Reformation was all about. Let's let's dive back into His Word and love His truth and love His standards. It is God preparing for us for the display of His glorious salvation. And then it reshapes every aspect of our lives, and it reshapes our church as well. And in this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah is guiding us towards personal and corporate reformation. Three words. We need it. We need it. Every generation needs that. Every generation needs reformation. And see, Isaiah dives right in with us here for the problem. The problem, starting in verse 18. Read along in your Bibles as I read aloud. Chapter 42, verse 18. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or so deaf is my messenger whom I send. Who is so blind as he that is at peace with me? Or so blind as a servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but you do not observe them. Your ears are open, but none hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to make the law great and glorious. But this is a people plundered and despoiled. All of them are trapped in caves or are hidden away in prisons. They have become a prey with none to deliver them and a spoil with none to say, give them back. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will give heed and listen hereafter? Who gave Jacob up for spoil and Israel to plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned and in whose ways that we were not willing to walk and whose law they did not obey? So we poured out on him the heat of his anger and the fierceness of battle, and it set him aflame all around. Yet he did not recognize it, and it burned him, but he paid no attention. Our culture's burning, isn't it? It's burning. And people aren't paying attention. They're clueless. And Isaiah had been talking about leading blind nations out of the darkness into the light of God in verses 16 and 17, right before this. We looked at that last week. So you would expect the deaf and blind to be here? Who is blind? You'd go, well, okay, maybe like last week's the idolatrous nations, right? Wrong. Who is blind but my servant, it says. Now, wait a minute, you may go. At the beginning of the chapter, the servant of the Lord was the servant. Jesus was a servant, bringing salvation to the nations in verses 1 through 4. But now the Lord's servant is blind in death. Jesus is blind in death. No, take a look here. Verse 1 of chapter 42, behold, my servant This is where sometimes you have to slow down. And notice, there are two words capitalized. My servant. Why would that be capitalized? Because that's referring 
to Christ. Now, zip down to where we started. Who is blind but my servant in verse 19? Notice something with the word servant there. Not capitalized. Not talking about Jesus. So who who is God's messenger that can't hear the message himself? Because in 18 through 25, the messenger fails. Last time I checked, does Jesus fail? Oh, let's come on. Does Jesus fail? No. No. Right, say it with some conviction. (laughs) So, how do you make sense of this? Verse 24 gives us the clue who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? The nation of Israel was the servant of the Lord here. But they were blind to God's purpose, deaf to God's word, failed in mission. So God sent the ideal servant, my servant, Jesus, verse 1 through 4, is looking forward to Jesus as we saw last week. Verses 18 through 25 are looking around at the lay of the land. They're looking around at Israel, who is blind, just as blind as the pagan nations. What does clueless Israel fail to see. What was God's purpose for them that they ended up not understanding completely? And that's found then in verse 21. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to make the law great and glorious. Uh, Israel's life mission as as a country, as, as his people, was to make God's law glorious to the world around. We talked about that over and over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy as we studied that last year. It was, it was going to be a different nation. It wasn't going to be a nation that cannibalized their young. See how, see how this plays out again? It was going to be a nation that was set up on different principles. It was going to be a nation that glorified God in everything that they would do. But they didn't do that. At the end of the day, they failed. But Jesus did. His whole life embodied God's law. And you know what? People noticed. They flocked to him. And that's West Hills Church mission as well. That is the church universal, the mission as well. When we're like Jesus, people sense that something beautiful has come to them. Israel's life mission was to make God's law glorious, and it didn't happen. But when our life together now makes the way of God glorious in human life, people can see it if they want. And that strategy is not our own self-flattering ambition to make God glorious. It's God's purpose for us. But back in Isaiah's day, God's people forfeited His purpose. And when you forfeit His purpose, you know what you invite? 
discipline. You, in, you invite discipline. When I forfeit the, the rules and the laws of the Julian household, I invite discipline. Yeah, you know, it's just how, it's, how it works. If you have a loving father, a loving mother, if you say fooey to the guardrails that have been put up, if they love you, they will say, it's discipline time. Who gave up Jacob to the looter, Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? You know, Isaiah, what does he do? He puts himself in the camp. You know, we, this is us as a nation. This is us as God's people. We have sinned. I would put myself in the camp of Californians. We have sinned. We have sinned against God. We have said that life is irrelevant. Some of you are like, I didn't say that. I get that. We'll get to that. But there's also, along with common grace, there's common discipline. Would you suspect that there were probably people within the Israelite culture that really, really, really tried to really live for the Lord? Yeah. Were they still captive in foreign lands? Yeah. See how this works? He poured out the heat of his anger. Verse 24, 25, the ending of it there, it burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. As the ESV says, New American Standard burned him, but he paid no attention. Uh, we are in a culture that's really good at not paying attention. Really, really good. It's been kind of interesting for me in the last few days watching people drive. You, you laugh, but you realize how many people just don't pay attention. Last Thursday night, I was driving home, and I was at the corner of uh, coming off the 118 and Balboa. You, you may know it right there. And I was sitting there, and the light turns green, and I've gotten myself into a new habit lately. I disregard the green light for a second or two, right? You know where I'm going with this. And I look to the left because that's where the traffic would be coming. And I look to the right because that would be the traffic coming from when I get further into the intersection. And I noticed a car. And I was going, that dude, I always, I always just assume it's a guy that's not paying attention. I, that dude is not going to stop. And I'm right 98% of the time. <laughs> very humble as well <laughs> but this this guy here he was going and he wasn't like going fast like racing fast he was just going 
And I was like, he's not going to stop. And the guy over here to my right, because it's two lanes that turn left, started going out into the intersection. And I started honking my horn. And it didn't matter. They, uh, that guy just T-boat him. And so I stopped for a second. Everyone was okay. And the guy, you know, there were plenty of people around. And, but it wasn't paying attention. It simply wasn't paying attention. A few days later, Jenny and I are driving downtown New Hall area. Come to a stoplight. Stop. Person, just person on my left just goes right through the light. I mean, and there, there were cars turning, all of that type of stuff. And I start honking again. I feel like that's my, my purpose in life now. Is <laughs> just like, yo! And they missed each other. And it may have actually been because I actually honked and someone paid attention fast enough. I'll take the credit. But we're not very good at paying attention. How many people zip from one thing to the other without remembering what the other thing was? And what God's word is saying here, even when the disciplines of God set us on fire, we don't necessarily take it to heart. We don't pay attention. And then when things start kind of unraveling maybe in our own life or in the life of our community or in our nation, all of a sudden we start blaming God. Maybe God's unfeeling, but God's not the problem. The problem is that our lives bear little relation to the purpose that we are called to. That's why Judah went into a national exile. That's why churches today even go into an exile. And that's why we need reformation as individuals and in churches. We aren't zeroed in on God's purpose to glorify Him in all that we say and do in our hearts, mind, soul, body, and the remedy is very interesting as it goes on here. You would think the remedy would be, wake up! Wake up, people! Isaiah says something a little different. So we had just finished reading through 42. The remedy here is, is God's intervention. Verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give you 
give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Zip back up to verse 1. Some of the favorite words that you can possibly see in Scripture. But now. Abruptly, Isaiah transitions from the problem to God's remedy. The Jacob and Israel here in verse 1 are just as blind, just as deaf as the Jacob and Israel in verses 18 and 19. But now does not signal any change in us. The but now declares the grace of God. The reason for the but now is not not even our repentance. The reason is God himself. Yes, if we force him into it, God will put us through the waters and the rivers and the fire and the flame. But he says, fear not. He says, fear not. Why? Because we will and do feel deeply insecure and fearful with God that he's going to deal, us, deal with us as, as we deserve. At the end of the day, you go, oh man, in, in my words, man, I, I'm toast. But he says, I am the Lord, your God the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Do we belong to Him? Yes. But even more deeply to understand here is that He belongs to us. A Savior has given Himself to who? His people. To us. Look at all the comments that are embedded in those verses. I created you. I formed you. I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. I will be with you. In, in other words, what matters most about you is not what you deserve, but whose you are. The disciplines of God are real, but they are not his last word to his people. Yes, as it says in verse 25, he poured out on him the heat of his anger and the fierceness of battle, and he set a flame all around. They didn't recognize it, and it burned him, but he paid no attention. But they are not his last words, are they? Salvation is. Whatever life throws at you, including the tough love of God himself, he will go with you through it. Because God is not aloof and just kind of hanging out and going, oh, there's the fires that I sent, stinks to be them. The truth is, 
as it says in verse 4, he's giving peoples in exchange for your life. Have you ever had those moments where something's gone on and something in someone else's life, and one plus two plus this and that equals a change in your life that you go, okay, God was involved in all of those things? All these other people? And that's what we see there. When we think about how boldly God orders events for our benefit, it's actually pretty embarrassing how small our faith is. God saved Israel at Egypt's expense. God had handed Babylon over to to Cyrus to release the Jewish people from exile. God has loving intentions towards you and he uses other people to fulfill them. Why does God care so actively for his people? There's only one reason back in verse 4, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Don't let the simplicity of that fool you. God is saying that he orchestrates history to benefit his people. God orchestrates history to benefit his people, his blind and deaf servants, because why we are precious in his eyes and we are honored and he loves us. Are you noticing maybe a little strain of a truth here that's kind of flowing through this? This is all about God. This is not about us. His grace is so great, it should shut our mouths in wonder. Can there be an even deeper explanation for God's grace than this? Yes, we celebrated it just a few minutes ago. He's given himself to us in Christ. He went through the affliction to save us. We are that precious to him. He loves us in the cross of Christ. God proved that he would rather die than lose one of us. Why? Well, Isaiah is pushing this even further to its ultimate scene here in verses 5 through 7, where we see God's ultimate purpose for loving us so much. I mean, down in verse 7, everyone who is called by my name and who I have created for my glory, whom I formed and made, God loves us, as we read earlier in the service in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, God loves us to the praise of his glorious grace. Our destiny. I mean, I mean, This is one of those things that when people say things like, man, I just don't know what my purpose is in life. It's like the Bible shouts it to us. The Bible shouts it to us. What is the purpose? Our destiny, our purpose is to be a living advertisement of how good God is. 
a living advertisement to how good God is to people who deserve the absolute opposite. One of the things that we have to do in our culture that watches movies and different things like that is we cannot think of God as a supporting role in the movie of our life. His purpose is to bring the glory of His salvation to Him. He's number one. He's number two. He's number three. He's number four. We play a supporting role in giving Him glory. His purpose is to bring the glory of His salvation down to our experience despite what we deserve so that He is admired, that He is delighted in. I heard a story just a few weeks ago within our Child Evangelism Fellowship team. There's a lady that was like, hey, I would, I would love to serve with CEF, but, but I was convicted of a felony. I, I was in a gang. Uh, we, we did something horrible. Convicted of a really bad thing. And what was so interesting in that was that that person served the time that they were supposed to serve, got out, met a person that shared Christ with them. And that person now has been serving in their church for years, raising kids in the Lord, is a new creation. And that gives who the glory? Him. Brings Him the glory of His salvation down to our experience where we don't deserve it. And when I read the story personally and heard the story, I just sit there and I go, that's, that's God's grace. That's, that's what God's all about. And that's what brings traction for Reformation, is to understand that. To understand the exclusive reality of God Starting in verse 8, bring out the people who are blind even though they have eyes and the deaf even though they have ears. All the nations have gathered together so that the peoples may be assembled. Who, who among them can declare this and proclaim to us these former things? Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say, it is true, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. 
and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? The purpose of God is the glory of God to the exclusion of all rival glories. There's no room in the gospel for the idea that Jesus is one of many spiritual paths. Jesus isn't even the best way. Jesus is the only way. Do you see? The the ultimate reason why God loves us is for us to be his witnesses. For us to be the living proof that he alone is the all-sufficient Savior God. Other religions and worldviews, if they have some sort of interaction meaningly with reality at all, because some don't, some you just go, oh, whoa, that is just bizarre. But there are some that have kernels of moral law in them and different things like that. But their deepest intention is not to glorify God on God's terms. It's to get to God by trying to act better. And that's not how it works. Go back and reread what we've done here. Who calls? God. Who changes? God. Nothing that we can do can get us back to God. God's grace is what changes everything. The only truth is the one that glorifies God as God. Everything else is compromised, as we see here, with idolatry. And God intends to put all of that rival glory stuff out of business because the idols of this modern world are life depleting they're joy killing they're disappointments and God says there in verse 11 what does he say I even I the Lord and there is no savior besides me every idol does something way different than God. Every idol, if you don't toe the line, that idol will demand a pound of flesh. Let's zip this into, what in the world did you just mean by that, Scott? If you're serving the idol of a career, for example, and if you don't sacrifice to that idol as it demands... Your career is over. If your idol is a perfect body, like mine, and you don't sacrifice to that idol as it demands, your self-image is devastated. You see how this plays out? But when we have defied the one true God, 
This is what's so different about God. When we defy the one true God, what does He do? He saves us. While yet we were still sinners, He saved us. Christ saved us. Why? To be His witnesses. That He's not just good, He is the only goodness anyone will ever experience. Throughout this whole section, do you see what God claims? I am He. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am God. I had a friend say this to me recently, and I I wrote it down because I, I thought it was incredibly profound. In our world, it's cool to search for God, but it's uncool to find Him. Isn't that true? Man, people search for God in all these different ways, but when you are found by the one true God, all of a sudden it's not cool. Are you willing to be uncool enough to find and embrace the only Savior? Because the outcome, the outcome starts here in verse 14 of chapter 43. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent to Babylon and will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, into the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty man. They will lie down together and not rise again. They have been quenched and extinguished like a wick. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people who I have formed for myself will declare my praise. See, God's intervention is ongoing. The living God came down into the experience of the Jewish exiles many years ago. And the same living God comes down into our own captivity today in sin. He proves all over again where it counts for us that He is real. And not because of what we deserve, but because of who He is. Isaiah is saying that the, you think about it. For the sake of this dumpy, fifth-rate little nation named Judah that most Babylonians had probably never heard of, for the sake of this dumpy little country, people, God is going to turn those proud Babylonians into fugitives, rushing down to their ships to escape the conquerors. Why does God do that? Because his people are a big deal? No. 
It's only because of who he is. What does that section of Scripture start with? He is our Redeemer. He is our Redeemer, taking us on as His personal responsibility, and He will release His own from every bondage. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It releases us from the bondage of evil and sin. If you relook at 16 through 19 there, that is really making a case for the exodus of Egypt in the days of Moses. But that's not, and this is what's going on here, God's saying that's not just a one-time event. That's a pattern. In the ways of God, the exodus is repeatable. It is a standard operation. And it was finally finished with the work of Christ on the cross. And here he is saying that we shouldn't so concentrate on his mercies in the past that we miss the new things that he's doing today. Now, God never acts of, out of his character and out of his word, so any new thing he's doing today will match his word. But what are we told when we get rid of sin through Christ? We're made new. We're a new creation. We're a new people. New activity going on that matches his word and his way But God never runs out of newness. He's able in amazing new ways to reenact the exodus in your life, to lead you through some of the Red Sea barrier that may be confronting you today of sin. In fact, he will if you trust him enough to follow him. Follow me. I will make you fishers of men. I will then send you out as fishers of men to be my witnesses to this world. Look at these new people. That's the purpose of God. In verse 21, we see it there. The people whom I have formed myself will declare my praise. That's the purpose of God, and he will never surrender it. He is the true God. He is the only Savior. He will have it known. His ultimate purpose is to magnify himself for the glory of his grace and in our everlasting joy. So if you are here today, and this is new to you, but maybe something's starting to click and go... uh, I don't know if I've ever said yes to Christ. Well, accept Christ now. Spurgeon said it like this. Now, some of you have been to every else for salvation except the Lord Jesus Christ. You have been to Rome, you've been to Oxford, and you've been to self. And I hardly know where else you have not been. Yet in spite of that, 
you may come to Christ even now. He will not refuse you even now. And when you accept Christ and his glory grips your heart, and maybe you're on this side of it, you've accepted Christ, his glory grips your heart, we are reformed to live heroic lives in a God-trivializing world. His greatness comes upon us through the Spirit, according to the purpose of God. It's not a burden, it's a thrill. God says, I will make streams in the desert. This last week, as we started, I'm going to finish it this way. This last week, you could feel like, man, we are in a big old moral desert where we live. God says, I will make streams in the desert. There's a church, some of you may have heard of it, it's called West Hills Church. It's a stream in the desert. It's one of many where God's put his lampstand. Where he said, you know, yeah, this this culture's got dry places, but there shall be wet places within it. Because the old places shall become new places, the crooked places shall become straight places. That which has been eviscerated and evaporated of the strings of life shall be replenished and refurbished with fresh, rushing waters of God's power and grace. That is why God sent His Son Jesus to the wasteland of our world to give us hope and joy and spiritual prosperity. God looked out over the world and saw what a waste we have made of things and decided to send His Son, it was always His plan, who would clean things up and set things right, where there is hopelessness and powerlessness and joylessness, God reforms with hope, with power, with joy. That which is impossible for humankind is possible for God. We need not waste our lives on the front porch of despair and go, man, this place stinks. We should not be rocking in our rocking chair in confusion and disillusionment looking at this world, but instead we should be excited to see what God does because God is always doing a new thing through Christ. And sign me up for that. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have together this morning to come before you and to sing praises, to acknowledge who you are and what you have done to understand once again that our purpose is to be witnesses, that we declare who you are. As it says in verse 21 there, Lord, they will declare my praise by who they are, new in you, 